Well, back in, uh, back in the spring of 2010, I learned something new. I learned about the four C's of diamonds. You know, you have, you have your color, clarity, cut, and carrot. And the reason being is I knew that I wanted to ask Lucy to marry me. And so um, I got that ring and um, it started burning a hole in my pocket. I was like, I got, when am I gonna do it? How am I gonna do it? And, uh, and eventually on a random Wednesday night, I took Lucy out on a date. I got down on one knee, asked her to marry me. And she said, are you serious? And I was like, I think you're supposed to say yes. And then she said yes, and, um, and she, she accepted. And we entered from that day forward um, into a season of engagement where, where we were now officially engaged. And then you start, like, we got to pick a wedding date. We've got to plan a wedding, which was way much more her than me. I'd provide feedback. I like this and I like this, but whatever, you know, what do you think is best? Um, but the hardest part of the, the season of engagement wasn't necessarily the wedding planning, it was the waiting. It's the, it's the waiting game of just being like, man, I'm ready for this day to come. I'm ready for, for the day that I'll see my bride come down the aisle and we'll say our I do's and when we can, we can like not have to say goodbye at the end of the night. Like I was so ready for the day, right? And so I say that because in Revelation chapter 19, we see that Jesus's second coming is compared to that of a wedding where he is the groom, we are the bride, and he's gonna come and take us home. Like he's gonna come back, all right? And so, but what that means is if we're waiting for Jesus to come back for a wedding day, that we are in a season of engagement. We're in a season where, where we're waiting. And what's so important to know for us as Christians in the waiting is that Satan is constantly trying to knock us off course. Satan is constantly trying to, to cause us to, to be unfaithful in our commitments to Jesus. He's constantly trying to, to pull our hearts and our affections away from Christ. And so in Revelation chapter 17 and 18, we learn how to stay faithful as we wait for Jesus's return. All right, so today we're gonna to look at three things when it comes to staying faithful as we wait for Jesus's return, as we wait for that great wedding day. So let's, let's pick up in chapter 17, verses one through three. It says, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and 10 horns. Welcome to Redeemer Community Church. All right, like, if you're like, this is my first time here, what in the world? All right, if you're, if you're new to Redeemer, new to Christianity, maybe exploring Christianity, I want to point out something. We are in an apocalyptic book, and so it has some crazy imagery. And when we read about this, this great prostitute and this beast, I want you to know that, that we don't literally believe that one day a beast will be like cruising around the earth and like a scantily clad woman will be sitting on top 
top of it. It's like, I think Satan operates way more covertly than overtly. It's like, I think that's the Antichrist. Like, like, right? And so this is symbolic language. And the reason he uses all of this this powerful language of, of beasts and different things is because there's something about that poetic, apocalyptic language that kind of grabs us at the heart level in a way that just basic facts can't. So instead of just telling us the facts, he's trying to engage us at a deeper emotional level. And so when you take these images of this woman and this beast, they combine to show us something. These images combine to represent how Satan works specifically through nations, right, or empires or economic systems, how Satan works in an effort to seduce people's hearts away from Jesus, right? This is kind of working to show us that, hey, we need to be understanding that Satan is constantly at work trying to seduce our hearts away from Christ, right? Look at verse four. It's gonna continue to describe this woman. It says, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality, right? Verse four is more or less like a, um, it's like a profile pic on a dating app, right? It's painting a picture of this woman and showing us that her appearance is meant to get us to quote, you know, swipe right or, um, or however you do the dating app. I've never done one. But all I just say, um, yeah, I did, I old fashioned dated Lucy, right? right? So all that to say, um, it's, it's like a profile pic that's meant to grab your attention, all right? So what we see is here's this, this beautiful woman, and she's wearing designer clothes, and she's decked out in just incredible jewelry. None of that costume jewelry stuff. She looks like Blake Lively at the Super Bowl, okay? And so she's decked out in jewelry, and what she's trying to do is she's trying to attract us to herself through her power, through her beauty, through her wealth. She, she's trying to draw us in, right? But we get a clue into who she is or what she's really about because she's holding this cup and the cup is just filled with evidence of all of the nasty things that she has done to get what she has, right? And so we kind of, we're clued in that, that she might look beautiful, but at a deeper level, there's something else. And this is, this is kind of a story that's as old as time. I mean, think about some of your favorite Disney movies, right? You have, you have Snow White and Maleficent, right? Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Like she's, she's this woman who looks attractive, but she really is someone who embodies all that's evil. Or if you watch the movie Tangled and see Gothel, all right, like, is, is she Maleficent? I don't know. It's conspiracy theory. But all that to say, like, once again, it's this, it's this other woman who appears to be attractive, but in reality is something far um, or, or something that's actually disgusting and evil and, and wicked. And so what we're seeing here is that kind of same concept is that this woman, um, the way that Satan works is something that looks beautiful from the outside looking in. To the watching world, to our, our, our eyes, it looks attractive. It looks seductive. But if we could see behind the curtains, it's something completely different. All right, look at verses five and six. It says, and on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. 
right? So, so on her forehead is, is kind of like tattooed this name. And so once again, symbolic. If something's on your forehead, it represents your ideologies. If something's on your hand, it represents your actions, right? And so we see that, that her kind of identity is Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes. And so what's interesting about this this being Babylon, all right, that her identity would be Babylon, is that the spirit of Babylon runs throughout all of Scripture. This is crazy to see, but if you read in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 11, there are these people that are unified and they're gathered in the land of Shinar, right? So they're gathered at Shinar, and while they're gathered there, completely unified, they start trying to build a massive tower to get to heaven because they want to be great without God's presence, they want, they want to establish for themselves a great name without God in the picture. And so they want God's stuff, but they don't want God, right? And so as they are doing this, God comes down and he confuses all of their languages, right? The people scatter, and this becomes known as the Tower of Babel, which is in the land of Shinar. Fast forward to Daniel chapter 1. Um, Israel is taken into exile, right? Because they have been conquered by a nation. And then in exile, they are brought to the land of Shinar, right? And so the nation or the empire that conquered them was the Babylonians, right? So once again, this, this kind of the same spirit that was in Genesis chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel is now present in Babylon as they take Israel into exile. Fast forward to Revelation and we see Babylon again, and what this is showing us is that the spirit of Babylon, which seeks to take God out of the picture, has existed throughout all of history and will continue to exist until Jesus comes again, right? So this spirit of Babylon is constantly at work. And, and so what it's trying to do is, one, it's trying to convince you that you don't need God, or B, it's trying to convince you that you could do a better job if you were in God's seat, Right? It's either trying to get you to think like, hey, I don't know if I want God or I need God. I think I'm doing okay by myself. Or two, it's trying to get you to believe that, you know what, like, I know God has a lot going on in the universe and, and maybe I'm a kind of a side thought. So I think I would actually do a better job ruling my life than he would. So let me take control. That's the spirit of Babylon at work. It always has been at work. It always is at work. Okay. Then that brings us to, to the second part of six. After that, we see John, and it says, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. Like this, this is like a huge warning for us. It says, when John saw her, he marveled greatly. And so what this means is, is John, right? One of Jesus's closest friends, if not his best friend, John, who was present in Jesus's earthly ministry, who heard all of Jesus's teachings, who saw Jesus's miracles, John, who was present at the resurrection, who hung out with Jesus in bodily form after his, after his death, John, who was there when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, John sees this woman who's seeking to pull our hearts away from God, and he's like, all right, like he, he's, he's seeing her and he is, is seduced for a moment here. This is a huge warning because if John can be seduced, surely we can be seduced, right? And so, so I think too quickly, we might say like, oh, this isn't my issue. Like, like I'm not at risk of having my heart pulled away because I, I know that I need Jesus and I don't think I could do a better job, so I'm good, right? But let's think about it like this. Let's say that I asked you, I was like, hey, do you like Taylor Swift? 
and you're like, nah, she's a horrible songwriter. Like, you know, you're, you're not into her. And I'm like, can I see your Spotify? And you're like, no. I'm like, let me see the Spotify playlist. And I, and I pull it up, and it's got her old country stuff. It's her mid-it stuff where she popped into pop culture, and then it's got her current stuff. I'm like, are you sure? Like, it's like my daughter's stuff, you know? Like, all that to say, like, if, if you say you aren't into her, but you're listening to her music, like, what you say doesn't necessarily align with what's real, okay? I say that because there's this, this phrase or this term, maybe a concept, I guess I should say, called functional atheism, all right? Functional atheism is where we, we verbally say we believe in Jesus. We verbally say we believe that Jesus is always with us, but functionally, it doesn't reflect in the way that we live our lives. That functionally, we still live in sin, that functionally, we still try to act as, a, as if we are self-sufficient. And it's like, that, that's nothing less than verbal or, or functional atheism. You might say you believe in Christ, but it's not reflected in the way that you live. And so I think for us, when we look at this, this reality that Satan is always trying to seduce our hearts away from Jesus, before we too quickly think this isn't, that we're not at risk, we need to understand that if John can be seduced, surely we can. And if you do an honest look at your life, have you been seduced? Like, do you just say you believe in Jesus or is it actually reflected in the way that you're living? Because if it's not reflected in the way that you're living, maybe you are currently under the seduction of the great prostitute, okay? So, so that kind of leads us to, I would say, like the, the first thing for us to understand, right? The first thing today is that we need to, the first thing for staying faithful is that we need to be aware of Satan's tactics. We need to be aware of Satan's tactics. I look at verses seven and eight. It says, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? This, that's, that's biblically speaking, this is like a cartoon slapping John around. Like, 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 like he's like, whoa, look at her. It's like, hey, hey, eyes on the prize. Don't look twice at that woman, right? Like, like don't, like, boom, boom, and slaps her around. It's like, why do you marvel at the woman, right? And he says, I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and 10 horns that carries her. This is, this is the angel's way of saying, um, when he says that the beast carries the woman, he's saying the woman might look good on the outside, but in reality, it's Satan um, propping her up, whispering into her ear, and funding her lifestyle, all right? The beast you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the worlds will marvel to see the beast because it was and it is not and it is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads, take note of that, that phrase, a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. All right, so let me unpack a little bit of what's going on here. Okay, so, so what we're seeing here is, is um, John is explaining to us in his writing that, that this woman, all right, is ultimately being controlled by Satan, all right? And so, but then we ask the question, like, well, who's the woman and, and how's this, this working itself out? If you look at the, the term, the seven mountains in verse 9, Right? So it says it's going to take wisdom to unpack this. Then he says the, the, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. When we ask the question, like, where is this woman? Like, where, did, where does she show up geographically? Where does she show up as, as far as, like, a timeline goes in history? Right? For the first readers, when they read about 
Babylon, right? And then they read about this woman being seated on the seven mountains, they would have immediately connected the dots and said, he's talking about Rome. He's talking about Rome because Rome is an empire built on the seven hills. But what's interesting is that John doesn't outright say it's Rome. She's going to be present during the Roman Empire. She's going to be present in modern day Italy. Like he doesn't tell us that because here's what I believe is going on. I believe the answer to like, where is the woman and when will the woman show up? Absolutely is Rome, right? At the time that John wrote this book, but I believe it's more. So I believe the reason why he doesn't say Rome, but he chooses the phrase Babylon is because he wants us to understand how that spirit of Babylon is working throughout all of history, that there will always be a Babylonian style kingdom, nation, or government. There will always be a Roman-like empire popping up throughout history that Satan can leverage to pull God's people's hearts away from him that Satan can use to oppose God's, God's people, right? And so we have to understand with Revelation is that this isn't just about what will happen. It's about what always happens. And so for us, if we want to stay faithful, we have to be aware of Satan's tactics because he's not creative, like, I loved it. Um, one of the testimonies about the women's retreat that happened a couple weeks ago is they identified lies that they believe. And then every woman, um, they would read off the lies that they felt like they were believing. And it was like the same lies throughout the whole group. It's like, you're believing that lie? You're believing that? Like, we're all believing the same lies. And, and one of the women said, like, how uncreative is Satan? Like, like, it's like the same things, right? But we have to understand is the way that Satan is working and has worked, it's not changing. He's using the same tactics from Genesis to Daniel to Revelation, and we need to be aware of them. Um, I liken it to this. Um, I love college sports. If you, if, you, if you wanna know what do I like to watch, college football, college basketball, right? And so, and so when you look at college sports, I'm sure this works for professionals as well. I just don't care for professional sports. Um, when you're playing a team, if you want to prepare for them, you watch film on them, right? And so as you're getting ready for an opponent, you watch film and you look at like, hey, where are their, where are their strengths? Because this is where we need to double down. Where are their weaknesses? Because this is what we want to exploit. What are their tendencies so that we can be ready or maybe get a, a jump on what they're going to do? What plays do they run and, and how are they effective? Like you can watch film and be better prepared for, for the game. What's happening here when we talk about staying faithful and knowing Satan's tactics is John is saying, I'm giving you the playbook. I'm giving you the film. So look at it and see how Satan works so that you can push back when it happens. So the first thing is we have to be aware that the spirit of Babylon has been at work from Genesis to Daniel to Revelation. It's continuing to be at work today. And it's Satan trying to convince you that you don't need Jesus or that you could do a better job if you were in his seat. All right. So we'll get a little bit more into the tactics in the second thing. Um, jump over to chapter 18 real quick. Chapter 18, verses one through three, there is an announcement. Verse two, it says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. And so in verses one through three, there's this announcement that Babylon has fallen. And as you keep reading the chapter, it's going to describe what fallenness looks like. So when, when a people group or a nation falls, it is filled with things like um, demonic warfare. 
It's filled with things like sexual brokenness, spiritual darkness, um, material wealth becomes worthless. Everything you've gained, all that you've worked for is lost. It's just, it's a bad picture here of what happens when Babylon falls. And so when you jump down to verse four, here's what John says. Then, then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her. This is a way of saying like, get out, get out. All right, he says, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped as high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. And so what John is doing here is he's trying to save us from discovering this conclusion on our own. He's trying to save us from the fallenness that we will experience if our hearts are seduced away from Christ, right? And so what he says is, look, you know what's gonna happen. You know how this game ends. Get out while you still can. But I think so often as Christians, um, like we, we operate like Floridians during a hurricane. It's like the weatherman's like, a hurricane's gonna destroy everything. And you're like, Honey, I'm gonna board up the windows, go to the Publix, get us some toilet paper, some milk. You want some ice cream? Get us some pralines and cream ice cream. Like we're gonna ride this thing out. You might be able to ride out a hurricane. You cannot ride out God's judgments, right? So we have to understand is what John is doing here with urgency is saying, get out of Babylon. So the first thing to stay faithful is we need to be aware of Satan's tactics. The second thing is we need to get out of Babylon. We need to get out of Babylon. And so this, this is, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. Um, some people will falsely say that America is the new Israel. Not true. All right. America is much more like Babylon than anything else. Right. All right. Just got in trouble. That's fine. All that to say, we have to understand like Satan is working through our nation. He is working through the things that we are so comfortable with to pull our hearts away from Jesus. And if we're not aware of that, like we are setting ourselves up for the seduction, right? If we're not aware of that. So what we have to understand is that we need to be aware of his tactics, but we need to get out. And I think the, the problem is so many people treat sin like a soft breakup. And I see this all the time with like couples will date. You have a guy and a girl and one person's more interested than the other. Eventually they have the like, I think we're gonna call it quits conversation. But then the person does the soft breakup. It's like, hey, we're, 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 we're not dating anymore. But then they still text like, hey, how's it going? Just thinking about you today. And the person on the other end is like, I don't know what to do with this. Like, are we broken up? Are they interested? Am I still, do I still have a chance? And that soft breakup, what it does is it always causes damage on the back end, right? right? And so, so, we're, so think, think about it like this. Let's say that you're engaged, okay? You've popped the question and, or, or you, you said yes to the question and you are in a season of engagement, and you have the dating history conversation, right? Like, who all have you dated? How physical were you? Like, that awkwardness of, like, kind of figure out, like, where have they been? You know, all the, you're having that conversation. So you have that conversation. You're like, whew, like, did it, over with, I'm still in, right? But then imagine this. You see their phone, and they're still texting their exes that you just heard about. You see their social media, and they're liking all of their exes' posts, heart heart, heart. And you see like DMs and you're going like, what? Like you wouldn't see that as neutral. You would see that as dangerous, right? That's dangerous. And so what happens is so often we try to manage sinful things or sinful patterns, right? The soft breakup, 
the, 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 like the Floridian and the hurricane, whatever, you want, whatever illustration works for you, right? We try to manage these things and you have to understand that 100% is flirting with the prostitute and the beast. To try to manage your sin or your sinful patterns is nothing less than flirting with the prostitute and the beast from Revelation, right? You've got to get out of Babylon. But that kind of that leads us to a, a bigger question of like, how? Like, like if, you, if, if America is more like Babylon than we might, might want to admit, like how do we get out of America? Is this a, like Californians moving to Tennessee? Is this, do we need to go to the desert and create like our own little compound? Do we need to become monks in a monastery, maybe go Amish or something else? Like what, how do we get out of this place? And here's what we have to understand, okay? Um, this isn't as much a, a radical change of place as much as it is a radical change of heart, okay? Because God has called us into this world. God has called us into this world because this world needs Jesus. So the answer isn't to create like a Christian ghetto or a Christian hiding place or a Christian bubble. Like we are called to be in the world, right? But not of the world. So if we're supposed to still be here, how do we get out, right? Well, it's not as much of a change of address as it is a change of heart, which means that we, we have different affections, different desires, and different actions in the way that we live our lives. So let, let me just... Let me give you two things. This, this will kind of tie back into point one. So if you're a note taker, I'm sorry, all over the place. Um, these, I think these are like, let's go back to the film room, okay? You're, you're watching the film on how Satan, Satan runs um, his offense. There are two plays that he runs again and again and again, right? It's like you see the fullback come around and you're like, he's running to the right. Like I've seen every time he's gonna go, he's gonna hit that block, he's gonna go. And you, you, you know it's coming. And like half my... Like non-football fans are like, I don't know what he's talking about, All right? Um, just imagine this, the plays that Satan runs, right? There are two plays that I believe are some of the most effective plays that he runs that we see in chapter 18, if you read through it, right? The first is the play of consumerism. Satan will seduce your heart and pull it away from Jesus by making you dissatisfied with where you are in life, by making you feel that you deserve more than you have and by giving you a greater desire for more material things. And if he can grip you with consumerism, he can slowly just take your heart and take your eyes and pull them away from Jesus. And so one of the ways that we get out of Babylon, one of the ways that we, we, we have this radical change of heart is, is we refuse to, to allow consumerism to be our temptation by choosing Christ-like generosity. Right? And so instead of, instead of falling into the consumeristic trap, we say, look, I'm not going to pursue consumerism. I'm going to pursue Christ-like generosity. And all of a sudden, you've positioned your heart to be radically different than the world. And now you're setting yourself up to have a radical effect for the kingdom in the culture that God has called you into. So reject consumerism, pursue Christ-like generosity. The second major play that Satan runs is, I think it's, it's centered around se the sexual ethic of our day. It's, it's sexual immorality. Where Think about it, like, what does our culture say? Do what you want, when you want, with whoever you want. Don't speak anybody else's life. In fact, you should celebrate their lifestyle. Like, we're very prideful of our sexual ethic as a country, right? right? You walk into our, our building, and there's like the pride center downstairs, 
It's like, like, it's like is this church affirming? Like, I don't know what to do with this. Like, no, they're, they're, they rent here, right? All that to say, what we have to understand is like the sex ethic, whether it's, whether it's hookup culture, whether it's um, the, the LBGTQIA stuff, whatever it is, like our culture is so jacked up with its sexual ethic that we as Christians to get out of Babylon is we reject the sexual ethic of our day and we pursue something that honors Christ, and what, pers- what honors Christ is, is sex between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. And anything outside of that does not honor Christ, and so we reject it. And so as followers of Christ, we want to say, like, hey, I, I, want to, I want to model something different and something more beautiful in the way that we pursue this, right? And so those, they're like those, I'm telling you, we could spend hours unpacking those two plays but those two plays are two of Satan's tactics that you need to be aware of. He runs them in every culture. He runs them constantly because they are effective in pulling your heart away from God. So ask the question, like, what do I do with this? Ask the question, how have I been lured into consumerism? All right, and then say, like, okay, how can, I, how can I get out of this by pursuing Christ-like generosity? Or ask yourself, where have I begun, began to feel comfortable um, and maybe just numb to or even found myself like changing when it comes to the sex ethic of our culture. And how do, I, how do I turn back and say, okay, what honors Christ and how can I model that in my own life? All right, so th- those are just two ways that we can actually get out of Babylon is through rejecting consumerism, through pursuing Christ-like generosity. And instead of bracing our world's sex ethic, we pursue that which honors Christ. Okay, so, so here's the big deal today, the big idea. The, the big thing I want us to understand is that as Christians, we have to fight to stay faithful to Jesus. Like as, as we wait for his second coming, we have to fight to stay faithful to Jesus. And it seems simple. It's like, all right, know the tactics and uh, get out of Babylon. Jeff, I'm, I'm good, but you said there's three things. Um, so the third thing, the third thing is this. Look at, look at chapter 19. I'm just going to read, I'm going to read four verses. Um, Verse one of 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And so 19 begins with a great multitude worshiping. Jump down to verse four. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah, more worship. Verse nine, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb, right? There's the wedding imagery. If you're like, Jeff, how did you get the wedding imagery? There it is. These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Like that's who we worship. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So the first thing is be aware of Satan's tactics. The second thing is get out of Babylon. The third and most important thing is worship Jesus. I don't know if you've ever heard of the, the concept of the, the expulsive power of a new affection, but this was, this was like radically, uh, this, this was so helpful for me when I tried to understand like, how do I change? Like, how do I, how do I break free of these idols that hold my heart and try to pull me away from Jesus? How do I truly change as a Christian? The expulsive power of a new affection. Um, think about it like this. Uh, 
Back in the day, there was this show called Mad TV. It was like a poor man's SNL. Um, And so in Mad TV, there was one particular skit where a lady was sitting down with a counselor. And he said, "What, what issue would you like to address today? And she said, I fear being buried alive in a box. And he goes, has anybody ever tried to bury you alive in a box? And she's like, no, but like whenever I'm in a room or an elevator, I just start panicking. He's like, okay, so he diagnoses her as being claustrophobic. And then he goes, all right, um, I've got two words for you. They're very important. Um, I want you to, to think deeply about these. I want you to take them with you out of this room and to apply them to the way that you live your life. And she goes, should I write them down? And he goes, I mean, you can, but it's two words. Like most people can remember two words. And so she gets a pen and paper in hand and she's leaning it. He goes, are you ready? And she's ready. And he goes, stop it. Stop it. And she's like, what? He goes, stop it. Stop it, right? And so you sit there like, is that how simple counseling is? And like, is that like, if you go to counseling, is that what it looks like? Like, just don't do it anymore. Wouldn't it be great if it's like, you guys, don't fall into consumerism. Don't fall into sexual morality. It's like, just stop it. That would be great, but it doesn't work that way because we need the expulsive power of a new affection. What this looks like is, I've got a buddy who, who was a drug addict back in the day. And, and one of the ways that he broke free of that addiction was by discovering a love for fitness. So he went from a drug addict to a fitness fanatic. But if you talk to him, one of the ways that he says he stays clean is because he now has a greater love for running. Like it's like now I have a greater run for running than I do for that. And so it's like all of a sudden the, the way that you fight the, the addiction, right, the harmful thing is by replacing it with a better thing. So for us, it's not as simple as just removing consumerism, removing sexual morality. We have to replace it with a greater love for Jesus. And that is the expulsive power of a new affection. The greater our affections become for Jesus, the more freedom we have over the sins that try to drag us back into the pit, right? And so for us, like, we need to be honest, like, how, how vulnerable are we? How often are we kind of pulled away from Jesus? How often do our hearts wander? And we have to say, like, okay, God, if, if, if I'm prone to wonder, if this is who I, I, I tend to become, if I'm not careful, then how do I fight to stay faithful? The most important thing is learning to worship Jesus. And that's what I love about gathered worship, right? Worship, worship is so much bigger than just Sunday morning. I want to start by saying that. Worship is so much bigger than Sunday morning, right? But there is something supernatural and special about the gathering of God's people to worship. When we gather in worship, something supernatural is taking place that's meant to stir our hearts and stir our affections towards Jesus. And so for us, if if we want to fight to stay faithful, we need to learn to worship at a deeper level, right? And so so that's what I want to do. Like as as we wrap up today, I want us to enter into a time of response, and I'm just going to pray that after we take communion, after we spend time in prayer, wherever God has moved on your heart, that, that we would worship. And I would love for this room to shake. Like, like and, I'm, and I'm like, Jeff, like, I'm just like, just like, like we, can, we can do it, you guys. We can, but I'm not saying like, I'm just, but I want us to worship like unabandoned, 
right? And to say like, okay, what am I singing? I mean, we're gonna sing a song about praising the name, the Lord our God. Like, like I want us to sing it out that like people in the streets are like, what is happening up there? Like, let it taste like heaven because worship will stir our affections towards Christ. And the greater our affections are for Jesus, the greater victories we're gonna have over the things that Satan is trying to use to pull our hearts away from him. So let's be people who worship, all right? So know Satan's tactics, know his playbook, right? Two of the primary things, consumerism, sex ethics, right? Know the tactics. Second thing, get out of Babylon, which is not necessarily a change of address as much as it is a change of heart. How do you change your heart? The expulsive power of a new affection, which happens as we worship Jesus. God, thank you for your word. As we get ready to respond, I, Father, I pray that your spirit would come down on this place in a powerful way. God, that, that, we, would, that we would find ourselves falling more in love with Jesus. Um, God, that we would see Jesus as better than anything this world has to offer and that that would break the bonds of consumerism and that we would find ourselves longing to be generous as you've given it all for us. And Father, I pray that, that as, we, as we worship that, that our affections would truly be stirred. God, there would be a stirring of our spirit and God, that, that we would be your children knowing what it means to be showered in the love of you as our Father and so, Father, I ask that this would be the most Trinitarian response ever. God, that we would worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a radical way, and that we would walk out of this room as those who have been up the mountain, as those who have been with Jesus. God, let our face shine with your glory. Let it be evident to our friends, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers, God, that we have worshiped you. And God, let us not physically get out of this place, but God, let us let us emotionally and affectionately and when our actions get out of this place to be different, to be salt and light to a world that desperately needs you. So Father, lead us to your heart as we respond. In your name we pray. Amen.